Show Abraham. Our Father, we know that we cannot truly understand any portion of your word unless your spirit opens our hearts to know it and believe it. And it seems especially this passage, we can't fathom what we're about to reflect upon. May your spirit apply it to each heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Please open God's word with me to Luke 22, verses 39 through 46, page 882 in the Church Bible. Luke 22, beginning with verse 39. This is God's word. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. If you take the road north of Jerusalem, the road will soon cross over a little brook called Kidron. And then the road will come to a fork. There'll be three roads that all break off at that fork and all go up the Mount of Olives. And at that fork, there is a grove, and it's called Gethsemane, which means oil press. Probably secluded, probably fenced in. Probably the owner of those olive trees was a follower of Christ because Christ and the disciples often met there. It was a quiet place to pray and to teach and even to sleep. Forever afterwards in history, Gethsemane is to be associated with Christ's sufferings and how deeply he suffered. You see it in verse 44, Luke uses the word agony or anguish of mind. The word that Luke is using has the idea of conflict, striving. There's a fight in his soul, as Jonathan Edwards writes. Jesus experienced no common degree of sorrow, but such extreme distress that his nature had a most violent conflict with it, as a man that wrestles with all his might with a strong man. 
Matthew, in the parallel account in 26:38, uses the word exceedingly sorrowful. It means grief all around, distress on every side. It's only Dr. Luke that speaks of his sweat as being bloody. And this comes after an angel had come to even strengthen him in verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The doctor notices this. It's either a bloody sweat from utmost extreme anguish, a condition called hematohydrosis, where the blood oozes through the skin, through the hemorrhaged sweat glands when a person is under extreme emotional distress, or just simply a metaphor of you've all had an open wound and the blood is just pumping out and blood is just streaming. Christ was in such agony that his sweat was just pouring off of his body. This is a struggle to the very limits, even though he's upheld by the angel and the Holy Spirit. It's such a limit that none of us can comprehend. Matthew 26, 38, Jesus said, it's even unto death, which means I'm right at the very edge. Even the smallest amount of suffering, if it be added to this, I would crash in death. Can't take one more feather. I'm on the very edge of the possibility of human endurance, of suffering. And if he gave himself in such love to save us, you need the assurance, you need to remember that love will, his love will never separate you from him now. Hebrews 5, 7, his prayers were of strong crying and tears, fulfilling Psalm 55. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death assail me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. Ferguson writes, this is a moment of trial, a moment of temptation, a moment of testing that surpasses anything that has taken place since the beginning of creation. The agony of Christ. But what were his sufferings about? Why was he in such anguish? Christ's sufferings were not primarily physical sufferings. It's not his he was, it was not that he was suffering because he was thinking about the events to soon happen. Judas, in minutes, coming to betray him, or Peter and all the other disciples to deny him. The Sanhedrin's mockery, or Pilate's, or Herod's whipping, and not even the suffering and physical torture upon the cross, with all of its torture and suffocation, the most cruel death that was left for the subhumans. Scripture doesn't focus on the physical sufferings of the cross. They're only mentioned in passing. 
Luke is the most brief of them all. He just simply says he died. Because Christ's sufferings were not primarily physical. And he willingly laid down his life for us. He's not a helpless victim at the cross. No one takes it from me, my life. I lay it down of my own accord, John 10, 18. And that's why he would set his face to go toward Jerusalem with a determination that frightened his disciples. And there's even a clue here, I think, in verse 39. Luke puts this in, not incidental. They go to the the Gethsemane. As usual, as was his custom. Why is that important? He's been there every night this week, going back and forth to the temple. He's going back to a place that Judas would know where he was. He's not going to hide. He's going to find a place where Judas will find it easy to find him because he's willingly laying down his life for us. He's going to the Garden of Gethsemane as to an appointment, calm and in charge. Christ's sufferings were not primarily physical sufferings. They were. We're not minimizing the physical suffering. But there was far more than that. And as you come to each month's Lord's Supper and you reflect upon his death, do reflect on it's more than the physical sufferings of the cross. What were Christ's sufferings in the garden? They were not primarily physical. And we can also say they were not primarily psychological. He deeply suffered in his ministry, in his whole person, his soul. He was continually the object of Satan's temptation and harassments. And this is now Satan's most intense, most vile, most powerful attack upon him. Luke twenty-two fifty-three. This is the hour, the power of darkness. It had to weigh on his mind and his soul heart. Scripture teaches that he suffered psychologically as a man. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. All the waves are crashing upon his soul, fulfilling Psalm 42.7. And all of that, all his life is now increased in these last hours where Satan is out to destroy him. The sufferings of his mind, the sufferings of his heart. Sufferings of his emotions. And he's having to do this alone. Matthew 26. Very powerful words. Jesus said to his disciples, My soul is sorrowful even to death. Watch with me. Jesus is looking to his friends. Pray with me through this. And they all forsake him. They all fall asleep. Three times, Matthew says, he came back and asked them, pray with me. And finally, they all betray him. He's even forsaken by the Father. 
We don't minimize his loneliness. We don't minimize the sufferings of his mind and his soul and his emotions. We can't grasp. He was on the very verge of death itself, even here, marred beyond human resemblance, and that includes his emotions and his One person writes, the cross is the undoing of humanity. Jesus stands on the edge of that precipice in which an individual comes apart emotionally. Such is the strain. But his sufferings were even for a greater reason. Sufferings of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane were not primarily physical sufferings and they're not primarily psychological sufferings. Christ's sufferings were primarily spiritual You see it in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Matthew tells us he prayed that same prayer three times. You read that verse, and even not knowing much about Scripture, you know that 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 cup is talking about something terrible. What is Christ referring to? We need to understand what the biblical concept is of the cup of God's wrath. That helps us understand Gethsemane's cup of wrath and gives us a warning for the future cup of God's wrath. First of all, the biblical concept of God's wrath, God's word speaks of a cup of blessing. You know it in Psalm 23, my cup overflows. The Lord has assigned my portion and my cup has made my lot secure. Psalm 116 and verse 5, cup of blessing. Not this one. It's the other side. It's the cup of the wrath of God. 17 passages in the Bible speak of this metaphor of God's wrath being a cup of wine that you must drink to the bottom. You must drink it to the dregs. Psalm 75, 7, God executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jeremiah uses this metaphor, and literally the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. Jeremiah is the Old Testament prophet, much like Noah. He didn't preach as long as Noah, but he did preach 25 years, and no one listened to him, and everyone mocked him. There was no repentance, and there was no results. But the year 605 B.C. came, and everything was changing politically in the world. Babylon was rising as an empire. It was starting to take the, collapse, the lands of the collapsed Assyrian Empire and Babylon was marching on and no one was stopping her. And she was poised to next come to Palestine and to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is preaching that day to a group of people and he holds up a cup of wine and he passes it around the audience and as one person sips the cup of wine... He names them a country, you who are drinking the cup. Let me call you Egypt. Drink this cup. 
The next person took a drink and he called them another nation. And Jeremiah said, if you think that you're not going to drink it, yes, you will. The Lord says you must and you shall. Jeremiah 25, 17. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink at Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and officials to make them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn and cursing as they are today. And all the kings of the north, near and far, one after the other, all the kingdoms on the face of the earth, and after them the king of Shishak will drink it too, and then tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, drink and get drunk and vomit and fall and rise no more because of the sword that I will send among you. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink, tell them this is what the Lord Almighty says, you must drink it. Same, I am bringing disaster on the city that bears my name. And will you indeed go unpunished? You will not go unpunished. For I am calling down a sword upon all who live on the earth, declares the Lord Almighty. That's the metaphor that's behind this cup in the Garden of Gethsemane. The cup of the wrath of God. Now this clarifies what Jesus is praying for in this cup that he must drink in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ is wrestling in several different ways here. He's wrestling, first of all, in prayer regarding the necessity of this cup. You see it in verse 42. If you're willing, it's not in any way that Jesus is resisting God's will. He's not questioning his submission. He's not questioning his obedience. But he's in agony. And in his humanity, he's crying out, are you certain? This is the only way for salvation. Here we see the necessity of the atonement. Christ dying upon the cross is not inherently necessary. God is, it's not inherent in God that he needs to save anyone. But once God had decreed to save someone, the cross was the only way. And Calvary's cross is not hypothetically necessary as if God chose this way, but he could have chosen another or third. This was the only way. It's absolutely necessary. This is the only way that God could save sinners. The only way where God's wisdom and righteousness and justice and holiness and love and mercy would all meet together. Anselm said years ago, wouldn't the cross be foolishness if God's purpose could have been achieved in another way? Only by Christ's death upon the cross that God can be both just and justifier of them that believe in Jesus, Romans 3.26. It was necessary because of the divine perfections. Hebrews 2.17, it behooved him. He had to be made like his brothers in all things, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Would God have delivered his son this way? if there was any other way to provide salvation. There was no other way. And Christ willingly submitted and took the cup. Do you see 
how much Jesus loves you, believer, more than you can ever imagine. He chose to die this horrible, God-forsaken death. He chose to be damned by God in your place. He did this because there was no other way for sinners to be saved. That's how much he loves you. Donald McLeod writes, The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. And because he did and suffered for us, if you receive Christ by faith, you will never have to suffer the way he did. Christ is struggling in the garden in agony because of the necessity of the cup. And secondly, Christ is wrestling in prayer regarding the horror of the cup. He's looking upon the horror of sin. He is sinless. He is infinitely holy and pure. And he sees that he will be declared sin for us. Sin is the very antithesis of a holy God. God cannot look upon sin. It's so opposite to who he is. Machen writes, the awfulness of the punishment of sin shows us as nothing else could how heinous a thing sin really is in the sight of God. May God cause us all to see sin more as God sees it. Christ saw the horror of sin. He saw the horror of hell. The cross is where Christ willingly took all of the sin for all of his people for all time. And then he was treated in judgment. He took hell in our place. The travail that was more than pain, nevertheless than the sum total of all, the terror of hell, Abraham Kuyper. You say the cup is reserved for the wicked. Yes, He's the only man in history that never deserved to drink that cup, but he became sin for us and then willingly drank, took hell in our place. He saw the horror of sin. He saw the horror of hell. And he's wrestling in prayer regarding the horror because he sees the horror as man. As truly man, he's facing this fact that he is choosing to take hell in our place. Remember, Christ's sufferings in the Garden of Gethsemane is facing them all as man. Mark Jones writes, Christ's obedience in our place needed to be a real obedience from a man. Jesus did not cheat by relying on his own divine nature while he acted as the second Adam. 
If the Mount of Transfiguration pulled aside the veil to reveal his divine glory, it's almost the opposite here. In Gethsemane, the veil is pulled aside to reveal his humanity. And the sheer horror of what lies before him now seems to overwhelm him. Humanly speaking, it's unhinging him. If the veil was pulled aside so that Peter, James, and John could catch a glimpse of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, now it's been pulled aside to show them his heart in all its human sensitivity. Here we see into Jesus' soul, into his inner being, he was in agony. Ferguson is the only man who ever lived for whom that cup had no claim. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus comes and prays to his Father, and every other time he's come in prayer, he seems, sees heaven opened in favor and in joy, and now he comes in prayer and he sees hell open before him. And this is the time when he chooses in his humanity. I will lay down my life and I will drink the fullness of the wrath of God in the place of my people. All false religions, humans are trying to find God. It's only Christianity where that infinitely perfect holy God comes to find us. And he's come and become one of us and taken on broken humanity to experience all of our temptations and sufferings and finally to go to the cross and die in our place and to give us his obedience. He had to be willing to embrace that cup to be the one and only mediator between God and man. And in love, he submits to take the cup of the wrath of God and drink it to its dregs. John Calvin, his horror was because he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. It was our sins, the burden of which he had assumed, that pressed him down with that enormous mass and tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. But he willingly took the horror in full. And he drinks it to the dregs. We don't know what dregs are, I guess most of us. You buy a bottle of wine here in this country, and there's no dregs in it, it's been filtered. In this country, agrarian society, when you made your wine, the very bottom of the barrel, the very bottom of the cup, and like little coffee grains, you know, it's the stuff that. Jesus drank the cup to its dregs. There wasn't a drop left of the wrath of God. It's not incidental that Jesus drinks from a cup upon the cross. Matthew 27, the first time he was offered wine to drink, he refused because it was mixed with gall, which is a sedative, and he chose to take the fullness of suffering with a clear mind. But the, the last time he was offered a cup, 
Gospel of John records, John 19, sour wine, the bacteria had already started to turn the wine bad. Jesus asked for the drink, and he was given the drink. He has to give his tongue moisture to be able to cry loudly, and he cried with a loud voice. But also, isn't it the beautiful picture that he was drinking the cup of wine? And on the cross, he took and drank the cup of the wrath of God for all of his people to the last drops, to the dregs. Amazing love. How can it be that, oh my God, should die for me? Upon the cross, Christ took our place as sinners, 2 Corinthians 5.18, God is not counting our sin against us, but rather 2 Corinthians 5.21, Christ was made sin for us. He was made sin for us in the sense that he took all of Adam's sin and guilt and Adam's rebellion as the king of the human race. He rebelled against God, and so everybody in the human race is constituted as rebels against God, just as if we lived there too. The history of redemption can be told as the story of what happened in two gardens. Garden of Eden, the first man, Adam, rebelled against God and he fell into sin and we're all counted as sinners in him. And here comes the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and he's in the garden again. And he chooses to willfully, fully obey and become sin for us. The voice which resounded through the Garden of Eden cried, Adam, where are you? But Adam hid himself, trembling behind the trees of the garden. The same voice with a similar intention is heard in the Garden of Gethsemane. The second Adam, however, does not withdraw from it, but proceeds to meet the high and lofty one who summons him before him, resolutely exclaiming, Here am I. God was, Christ was made sin for us, taking on Adam's sin, but also every sin that every believer would ever commit. Think of the enormity of our sins, every sinful thought, every sinful attitude, or word, or lust, or desire, or act, and the enormity of our whole life. Multiply that by the enormity of the ages, every sheep of this shepherd, from the first day of history to the last day of history. He was made sin, past tense, one complete action, once for all. There upon the cross, he was constituted, legally constituted as sin and guilt. It was all imputed to him. Our sin was legally transferred to him, heaped upon him. So nothing could be seen but our sin. He appeared to be all sin. There's nothing of his beauty. None of his holiness could be seen, Christ it's entirely sin. And the Father said, This cup is for the wicked. And he drank it all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 6. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 2 24. 
Jesus said, John 10, I lay down my life for my sheep. Shorter Catechism 33, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, received by faith alone. There's full pardon and full righteousness of Christ received by faith alone so that you, believer, stand before him now with no condemnation, and there never will be. The Bible tells us of the biblical cup of God's wrath, metaphor, and even the prop that was often used throughout Scripture. Speaking of the wrath of God, you bring that into the Garden of Gethsemane, it helps us understand what Christ is praying. Is there any other way other than me drinking this cup. But this also is a warning. Looking ahead, you see, because there's another future cup of God's wrath. Revelation 14.10. And each unbeliever on that last day, when Christ returns, will drink of the wine of God's wrath, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. All who do not have their names in the Lamb's book of life will drink the cup of the wrath of God leaves each of you with this question, which of those two cups are you drinking? Will you be those who've said, Jesus Christ has drank my cup that I deserved, and he drank it for me, and he drank it to the dregs? Or say, I will not trust in Christ, I will not follow Christ then on that day, you will drink the cup of the wrath of God. But why? Come to Christ. Come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, the fullness of joy, reconciliation to God. Shall we pray? Almighty God, we read the word and we read this account of Christ's sufferings, but it's, we know that it's beyond us to grasp. 
We know enough that this is a terrible picture of sin if Christ was so horrified and in agony about this cup. Give us a greater hatred for our sin. We also know that this is a picture of his infinite love for us, that he would choose to do this to save us. And so, since we have been purchased with the blood of Christ, cause us to realize we are not our own and to willingly give our lives to Christ. We pray that each one under the ministry of the word today is having and trusting in Christ that he has drank the cup for us. How our Father, we pray that everyone under the hearing of the word today will not on that last day be given the cup of your wrath to drink. Cause us to believe the gospel, to come to Christ, and to know the fullness of the joy of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.